Esther is one of those very rarely studied and preached on books of the Bible. In fact, your pages might be crisp, pristine, clear, no underlines, no highlights, no fingerprints, no folds. It's just that book you read through when you read through the Bible once a year. That's about it. Part of that is that the book of Esther does not contain either the name of God in the Old Testament, which is Yahweh, or the generic Hebrew name for God, like our English word God. It doesn't have either one. It's the only book of the Bible that that can be said of. So it doesn't seem like it's that devotional, that it's that theological. It seems like more of a secular book, that it's just a little bit of Jewish history and that it's not out to teach very much. Although we could say this, if it's inspired, which it is, then is it possible to glorify God by a poem, a song, a novel that never has the name Jesus in it? The answer has to be yes. While at the same time, could someone live his or her life too many months and years and not use the name of Jesus in writing or in conversation? The answer to that has to be no. Both the book of Daniel, also written in the exile, and the book of Esther, later on in the book of Esther, will affirm that for us as well. In fact, some interesting points of application for missions and cross-cultural studies come from the books of Esther and Daniel. And since we're pretty familiar with Daniel, I thought we'd look at Esther for a while tonight. I'm going to start with the story of Esther, kind of my version of Cliff Notes on Esther, but this will take 20, 25 minutes. I guarantee you, though, our three points of application after that are really short. But hang with me. This will be more than a five or ten minute summary of the book of Esther. Esther starts with four characters, and as we are introduced to each four, we've gone through the first three chapters. So let's meet these four characters. First character is Xerxes, spelled with two X's, X-E-R-X-E-S. Xerxes is the Greek name for the king of Persia that we read about in the book of Esther. Now, if you read through the book, you'll see him referred to by his Hebrew name. We're going to call him Xerxes for tonight. As we start in chapter 1, chapter 1 begins with what in Persian literature, ancient Persian literature, is called the table of the king or the king's table or the king's banquet. So the table of the king is a very common expression in Persian literature, and it means a banquet that the king throws and invites people to maybe similar to the White House. If you're on that short list of invitees, whether it's a dozen or 200, it's a pretty high honor. Well, the table of the king in ancient Persia was the upper crust of the upper crust of the upper crust. And you made it if you're invited by Xerxes to a banquet. And the book starts with two banquets. In fact, Esther, the book, is organized around eight banquets, eight instances of this table of the king. So, that's Xerxes. These banquets, we'll read a little bit later from chapter 1, were lavish, they were in excess, they were extravagant, they were meant to show off his wealth and his power. Very worldly in their origin and practice and effect on people that went to them. And they were meant to be that way. 
They're meant to elevate a human being, the king of Persia. Now, he has two of these at the end of chapter 1. And in the second one, toward the end, this is an all-male kind of thing here, a guy's party, he summons his wife. Her name is Vashti. Vashti refuses to come. We don't know exactly why Xerxes summoned her. One commentator thinks the guys were all getting drunk. His wife is obviously very beautiful. He wants to come show her off, uh, her beauty and her body, maybe even abuse her in front of other men. We don't know. We're not told. We don't know why Vashti refused to come. Maybe it was because of the reason I just gave. She knew that that was coming. One commentator suggests that she was pregnant close to nine months with their son that would later become king in his place and just was not feeling very good. We don't know why she refused to come. But what happened was some advisors went to King Xerxes and said, after her refusal, this is preposterous, this is ridiculous. You are publicly being shamed by your wife. Therefore, this is what you should do. You can't really kill her. But... If she won't come when you summon her, banish her from ever coming the rest of her life. One more thing about King Xerxes, he's very weak-willed for a king of Persia. Every decision he makes, if you read through the book, is because someone has manipulated him, told him half-truths, or, in the case of Esther, not half-truths, but influenced him. So people tell him, banish your wife. Xerxes is like, uh, Okay, let's do that, what you just suggested. Let's banish her. And so she is banished. That brings us to character number two, Esther, the person the book is named after. We read in chapter 2, verse 5, this. Um, Sorry, chapter 2, verse 8. We read that her name is Hadassah. That's her Hebrew name. Now, you may have never heard that name before, and that's because throughout the book, she is referred to by her Persian name, which is Esther. Kind of a contrast here between Esther, the book of Esther, and the book of Daniel. Why? Because in the book of Daniel, we know the guy's name is Daniel. That's a Hebrew name. Daniel was given a Babylonian name, but throughout the book is referred to as Daniel. Esther, the opposite. She has a Hebrew name, which we don't remember because we know her by Esther, her Persian name. So maybe a really quick sidebar, side note, footnote here. If missionaries go to foreign cultures, can they change their names or take their American names and make them sound a little bit more like the names of the culture they're part of? We don't have a good example or a bad example of that because we've got two examples that are opposites in the Bible. The Bible just doesn't speak to something like that, whether that's sinful or righteous, wise or foolish. How does Esther come onto the scene? Most of you know the story. Because Vashti is no longer there, some advisors to the king, and that's how he makes decisions, say, hold a beauty pageant, and Esther wins. Now, I'm soft-pedaling it. It's not quite that nice of a story, is it? Um, She's Jewish. She hides that, by the way. She doesn't tell the king she's Jewish, which means she knows and follows the laws of Moses, called the Torah, the instruction the divine revelation from God himself. And that forbids, number one, sleeping with somebody before you're married. Number two, 
marrying someone that doesn't know and worship and honor and fear Yahweh. And she does both. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. For now, Esther is the queen of Persia. No one knows that she's Jewish. Character number three, Mordecai. Mordecai is the cousin of Esther. He's an older cousin, and he adopts Esther. So get this, Esther has four things going against her. Number one, she's not wealthy. She's not from any aristocratic family. Actually, kings of Persia were supposed to marry the upper class to help them in their position, and Xerxes does not do that in this case. So she's a commoner. Uh, Number two, she's an orphan. She has that going against her. She doesn't have parents that can fend for her. Number three, she's a woman, and in the ancient world, women are below men. And number four, she's Jewish, exiled in Persia. Four things going against her. And yet she saves her people. We know that by the end of the book. So character number three, Mordecai, is, as we said, her cousin. Let's read about Mordecai in chapter 2, verse 5. So 2.5 says this. There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, this is the capital of Persia, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, and he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, of all those names, you just have to focus on one because one would have put a light bulb on in the mind of an Israelite, and that's the last one, Kish, from the tribe of Benjamin. There's only one Kish mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He was Saul's father. You guys remember who Saul was? Can you nod your head? Saul was the first king of Israel. So, Mordecai is a descendant of Saul, the king of Israel. Put that on the back burner. We need that later. One more thing about Mordecai. He learns of an assassination plot, a pair of guys that want to kill King Xerxes. He tells the king about that so that the attempt is foiled and the king executes the two would-be assassins. Put that on the back burner. We need that later. Character number four, final character, Haman, H-A-M-A-N. We read about Haman in chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, the king Xerxes, again, we're going to call him by his Greek name, promoted Haman the Agagite, and a little bit later in the verse, advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Key word there is Agag, A-G-A-G. So here's where that comes from. There was a king called Agag who was king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites throughout history were the sworn enemies of Israel. They lived just outside of Canaan and they wanted to kill the Jews. Agag was their king and is discussed in the famous battle between King Saul and King Agag in 1 Samuel 15. Saul wins. He doesn't kill Agag at first. Samuel really confronts Saul about that. In fact, tells Saul that the kingdom will be taken from him. Saul eventually kills Agag, but apparently Agag has descendants, and one of them is this guy, Haman. So we're supposed to know as readers this. Haman is part of a lineage that hates the people of God and wants to see them killed. Haman is not a Persian comes from a land right next door to Palestine or Canaan or Israel. 
that's going to be an important fact. Why? Because now that we've been introduced to the four characters, we're going to be introduced to the first big conflict that comes. And it doesn't seem to be that big of one, but so much of the book stems from this conflict. Here's what happens. Apparently, Mordecai, the Jewish cousin of Esther, who is some kind of official in his own right in the Persian kingdom, passes by Haman in the hallway, and Mordecai refuses to bow. Let's read about it. Chapter 3, verse 2. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Skip down to verse 5 of chapter 3. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, with wrath, with anger. Now, why did Mordecai not bow before Haman? Well, one thought, but it's pretty quickly dismissed by commentators, is this. Maybe in Mordecai's mind, Haman was by his highly elevated status, Xerxes put him at the very top of the kingdom, just under him, the king, was somehow divine or had some spark of divinity in him. So maybe Mordecai was saying, I'm not going to bow to any official of Persia. Maybe it's similar to Daniel not wanting to bow before any image. But that gets pretty quickly dismissed for a couple reasons. One, we don't read about Mordecai elsewhere in the book of Esther not bowing before people including Xerxes. He doesn't seem to have that problem with anybody else, just Haman. Two, we know from records that in Persia, this was a pretty neutral thing to do, much like Japanese businessmen will bow before other businessmen. Uh, It is morally neutral. Did not carry with it any implicit or explicit expression of worship to any pagan god or goddess. So why... Would Mordecai not bow before Haman? We've been told already because Haman is part of a lineage and a tradition that hates the Jewish people, the people of God. So it's really not unlike at all a person that is Jewish, maybe around 1939, 1940, 1941, 1942, being shown perhaps a poster of Hitler, told to bend the knee and refusing to do that. Not unlike that at all. Haman is enraged because of this. In fact, Haman's name sounds almost identical and is spelled almost identical to the Hebrew noun for wrath or anger, the old English word wrath, starting with a W, R-A-T-H. So we know how to pronounce Haman's name. The Hebrew noun for wrath is Hema. So in this verse, verse 5, it ends with this. Haman is filled with Hema. So I was trying to think of little analogies earlier today, and I came up with two. I don't know if they'll work or not, but here's, here are my analogies. It's like us saying, Drew, this Drew, loves to draw people into music. And if I would use draw two or three times, you'd get it. You'd go, oh, I get it, Ron. You're making a little pun there, aren't you? Drew, drew people into music, I get it. Or if I say Matt is not going to be a doormat anymore. Matt, in a good, healthy, godly way, is going to be assertive, but yet humble. He's not going to let people make decisions for him or walk all over him. Matt is not a Matt anymore, and you'd know that's a pun. So whether Haman is his real name and he lives up to it, 
Or some commentators say it's his nickname that he was given by the Jewish people. He's like the wrath man because that's his special skill. His superpower is to be angry to the point of hating someone, wanting their death, not just their death, but the death of their family, their mom, their grandma, their children, everybody. That's Haman. He's wrath man. So we've had this conflict now. Mordecai doesn't bow down. What does Haman do about it? He gets so angry that it consumes him. He can think of nothing else. And so Haman goes to the king, to Xerxes, and he says this. Haman says, there's a people group in your kingdom. They're not worth very much. They don't contribute anything. You're not going to miss them at all. They disobey your laws. And it would benefit you if they were exterminated. In fact, I'll help, I'll organize it, I'll get rid of them for you, and I'll even pay you 10,000 talents. A talent is a huge weight of silver. The equivalency would be hundreds of millions of dollars if you do this. Some people think Haman was going to plunder the more wealthy Jews to try to raise money for some of that bribe. Remember what King Xerxes is known by, not making his own decisions? So Xerxes says, without even knowing it's the Jewish people being talked about, Haman doesn't say what people group it is. Xerxes says, uh, okay, sounds good, just whatever you said. Here's my ring on the deal. Now, signed with the signet ring, a law of the Persian king could not be repealed. Now, does that mean if the Persian Empire stood for a thousand years, that a thousand years the laws couldn't be changed? No, probably not. But it meant there was a permanency. You could not alter it in the first few months or even the first decade. It was that serious. So that becomes important later in the story. The law cannot be repealed or revoked once it's made. Now, we're set up for two things that happen in the next few chapters and really close out the book. One, Esther learns of Haman's plot to destroy the Jewish people and that this has the king's approval, his stamp, his endorsement. Little problem here. Esther has not seen the king, her husband, in 30 days. So probably not the healthiest of marriages, right? If, if Guys, if we didn't see our wife for 30 days, barring something like military deployment or your work sends you across the globe, barring stuff like that, that wouldn't be a good thing, would it? But that's the case here. So she's not sure if she's really welcome, even in a conversation with him. On a deeper level, there's a law of the Persian kings, it's been confirmed outside of the Bible, that no one can enter into the presence of the king unless summoned. Her only chance is if the king extends his scepter to her, then she can speak. But if she walks in, the guards are watching this, the king just sits there, five seconds passes, the guards grab anyone, including the queen, haul him out and behead him. This is where we get the famous quote from Esther, if I perish, I perish. But I've got to go speak to the king about my people. She does. She goes into the throne room. He extends the scepter. And he says, what is your request? Apparently he's real happy to see her. He's missed her for 30 days. 
and he knows she's there for a petition. Otherwise, why would she risk her life? So he says, what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, and I'll give it to you. Now, this expression, up to half the kingdom, probably not meant to be taken literally. And people knew that. The king couldn't say, I'll give you the whole kingdom. That would clearly be something he wouldn't mean. But this expression, I'll give you up to half the kingdom, did have seriousness behind it. It meant you could ask for something significant. But Esther knows if he's worth $200 million, you don't say, oh, king, give me $100 million because you said I could have up to 50%. No. In fact, we've got a New Testament parallel to that. If you remember your gospel accounts, Herod has what is his stepdaughter dance before him. Apparently, it's a pretty lewd, erotic dance. He's so pleased by the dance that he says to his stepdaughter, ask me anything you want up to half the kingdom and I'll give it to you. Again, she knows I can't ask for $100 million, but I can ask for something significant. Her mother hates John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in jail. The mother tells the daughter, this is what you ask for. He's afraid to kill John the Baptist. I'm not afraid of John the Baptist. Ask Herod for his head on a platter. She does. Herod has to do it because he's publicly made that promise. I'll give you a significant gift. Back to Esther. Esther says, I'm not going to tell you right now. I'll make a small request right now, and that is that we do a banquet. Remember, that's how the book is organized. But this is a small private banquet. Just you, King Xerxes, and me, and your top official, Haman. And then I'll tell you what the request is. That's the first event now set in motion. Second event is this that closes the book out. Xerxes goes to bed that night and can't sleep. So this is like maybe some of us when we can't sleep at 3 a.m. The harder we try to get to sleep, the worse it gets, right? So we pull out a novel. We start turning our, our computer on. We clean and wash some dishes. We do something, and then we're like, oh, I'm tired now. So some people think that Xerxes, his call to have history books brought and read to him was actually a way for him to get to sleep. We don't know. But he tells his servants, bring the annals of the history of Persia. So the servants, I'm filling in some gaps here. The servants might say something like, well, are you interested in Cyrus or Darius? Which king before you do you want? And Xerxes is probably like, I want to read about me. So let's make it all about me. Bring me the history books from the last whole 10 years. So they bring them. They start reading, and they read about Mordecai, how he told the king about two would-be assassins. Little footnote here on Persian culture. Persian culture of the ancient world was a highly involved culture of honor and shame. Now, don't have five minutes to go over what that is. But part of an honor and shame culture is that when someone does you a favor, you must do them a favor back. You owe them. So King Xerxes says to his servants, what did we do for Mordecai? The servants say, I hate to tell you this, we didn't do anything for Mordecai. So Xerxes says, we got to correct that and correct it now. Which one of my high officials are outside of my throne room right now? The servants look, they come back, they say, Haman is there. Xerxes says, perfect, my top guy, send him in. Haman comes in. Xerxes says, Haman, 
what should be done for the man that the king wants to honor above all men? Some of you know the story. Haman thinks the king is talking about him. So Haman says, let me think for a minute. Okay, I've thought long enough. Here's what you should do. Put your robe, your royal robe on this guy you're talking about. Then put him on your royal horse. Then put your crown on his head. Then find a trusted nobleman who will lead the horse around the city square. Get thousands of people out there, have a parade. That's what you should do. Xerxes says, dude, that's a great idea. Now, you need to go do that for Mordecai. Find Mordecai, do all those things you just said, and you be the trusted nobleman that leads him around on the horse. So what do we say Haman was? He's wrath man. He's going to go out even more angry than before. Goes home, thence to his wife in a pretty big way. Back to the first event. Remember what happened? Esther goes into the king. He extends the scepter. She doesn't tell him her request. The banquet happens with just the three of them. So the king says, okay, I've waited. What is this request that made you risk your life? And Esther says this. Let's read it in chapter 3, verse 5. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. The king starts getting angry. The king starts experiencing this Hebrew noun, Hema. And the king basically says, who would dare to try to kill you, my wife, the queen of Persia? And Queen Esther points the finger at the third guy there at the banquet, third person there, and says, this wicked Haman. The king is so angry... Again, I'm filling in some blanks here. The king is like, I've got to give myself a time out here. I'm getting so angry. I've got to leave the room. I'll be back in a few minutes. Last little footnote on Persian culture for tonight. No man could be alone with the queen. That was punishable by death. The only man who could be alone with the queen would be a eunuch. And because we have kids here, I won't tell you what a eunuch is. I don't think I'd tell you anyway if we were all adults. But, I'm just too shy. But, the big point is, no male could be alone with the queen. Everyone knew this. Haman certainly knows that. So get this, when Haman sees Xerxes leave the door, he's supposed to be right on the tail of Xerxes. Immediately, without thinking, Haman stays. Probably because he thinks, my life is over but maybe I can beg something from the queen. So Haman starts to beg for mercy from the queen. He lowers himself. You can picture maybe his hands are outstretched. He starts talking. Um, He starts lowering himself. He falls on her couch. The queen moves away. That's the exact moment that the king comes back into the room and accuses Haman of possibly molesting his wife as well as wanting her dead. But the bottom line is Xerxes has the perfect reason now to kill Haman because Haman has violated this, one of the most precious and high laws of the king, you're not alone with his queen. Only one more thing that has to be resolved in the story, and then the story is done. 
And that is that law. Remember how I said it couldn't be repealed or revoked? Xerxes approved the destruction of the Jewish people. So Esther, at the end of the book, comes up with a brilliant strategy for that. She proposes a second law. And the second law is this, that the Jewish people may defend themselves. Now, once that law gets promulgated to all the provinces, the Persian Empire pretty much knows where the king's heart is. It's with his wife. And so many Persians join the Jews in defending themselves. Some Persians still try to attack and kill the Jews. The Jews are successful in defending themselves. And the book is clear to tell us that the Jews don't take plunder. When they have to kill the Persians that are attacking them, they don't ransack their homes or take plunder, as the Persians were trying to do to the Jews. And we've got a great story with a happy ending. Now, if you've seen the topic for tonight, I want to give you three trick questions, which means don't even try to answer them, or you'll be possibly embarrassed, about Esther. Question one, what do we learn about Esther from chapter one? Here's my answer, nothing. We don't learn anything about the person Esther from chapter one. Chapter one is a very odd start to a book. It doesn't start with the Jewish people. It doesn't start with the exile. It doesn't start with Esther. It doesn't start with Mordecai. It starts with the banquet. Let's read a few verses. Starting at verse 3. In the third year of his reign, this is Xerxes, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, actually 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast. Here's the second feast of those eight, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains, violet hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, to silver rods and marble pillars, also couches of gold and silver, on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, like lots of different shapes and sizes. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. The book of Esther starts with a very detailed scene of the extravagance of this world and what is important to this world. So what is important? What are we as believers of God, followers of Jesus, being reminded of in Esther chapter 1? The kind of table that the king of this world sets is one that is all about appearance, looks, credentials, power, position, status, who you're seen with and who is seen with you. All of those things. And we are supposed to be, and we are, as we read this, repulsed by that. That is not the way that followers of Christ think and behave. That is not how we throw banquets for one another. So at this point in the book of Esther, we're going to take a break and have Lord's Supper. So a quick reminder before we do this. Lord's Supper is the only banquet, the only table that is commanded for us. And it is for believers in Jesus, those who follow him as Savior and Lord. 
So if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you don't understand the cross, if you've not trusted completely in Christ's work on the cross, then when these plates come by, we'll have the men pass them around up and down the rows. Just take it and pass it on. We want you to observe but not participate in this meal. In fact, if you have doubts, you know, I believe in God, but I don't know exactly what I think about this guy called Jesus and what happened on the cross. I'm not even sure if he really rose from the dead or not. Then let the plate pass. Only if you're confident, not sinlessly perfect, but confident and assured. I understand the gospel. I am a follower of Jesus. I'm very imperfect. I've sinned today a dozen times, but I am a follower of Jesus. And I love and fear him, and I worship him, not men and women, not the ways of this world. Then let that plate pause. Pull off a piece of bread. Hold it in your hand, and we'll all take together. So if the men will come forward right now, I'm going to keep teaching while they pass these elements. So this will be a little bit different tonight. But I'll have the men pass these. Again, take a piece of bread. Hang on to it. Question number two in the book of Esther. Is Esther a hero? Here's my answer to the trick question, yes and no. People want to look at Esther as some example for good or for bad, and it's a very, very hard and difficult thing to do. Why is it hard? Some parts of the book, she seems to be an example not to follow. Remember what we said about sleeping with someone before you're married or marrying someone that's not a believer. And yet in the second half of the book, she's very courageous and affirms, along with Mordecai, her loyalty to God's people, even at the risk of her own life. So it's very hard to determine whether she's a good example or a bad one. At times she's a good example, at times she's a bad one. People could probably look at our lives and say the same thing. I mean, I'd hate to have anyone say, oh, follow Ron, do what he does. I'd say, no, don't do that. That sounds like... Every part of my life, every station, every era, I've done things that are right. But likewise, I wouldn't want someone to say, don't ever follow Ron. Do the opposite of what Ron does. No, that's going to the other extreme. There are portions of my life where I feel like I've followed Christ as I should, and there are portions where I feel like I've failed miserably. And that's what Esther would say. So don't look at Esther, the whole book, the character in the whole book, and say, she's good. And don't say she's bad, because she's both, like you and me are. But at the end, she aligns herself with Mordecai, and at the risk of her life, as I mentioned, affirms her loyalty to the people of God. And in the book of Esther, loyalty to God is, think of an equals sign, loyalty to God is loyalty to his people. Of the four or five theological themes taught by the book of Esther, that's probably the most important. Loyalty to God is loyalty to his people. Here's what one commentator said about the book of Esther. One commentator said this. In the book, things like chapter 1, what we read about is this. Power is often materially conveyed through physical items. Clothing, a scepter, a throne, golden goblets that you drink from, 
a ring, palace furnishings. It's very true. We're meant to be reminded of the value system of this world. What is our value system tonight symbolized by? Something as humble as a piece of bread and a cup of juice. And the juice comes in little plastic cups, doesn't it? In something that's really stainless steel, just to kind of protect things and look fairly nice. Why? Because we don't put our faith and trust in the things of this world. We put our faith and trust and hope in what these represent, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Amen? Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, this is my body, broken for you. Remember, do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Let's do that. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, Screwtape is a demon. He has an uncle that's kind of a Satan figure that is advising him on how to attack human beings, especially this man that Screwtape is working on. So the uncle says this, our enemy, remember the uncle is a Satan figure, so the enemy is God himself. Our enemy wants to turn the man's attention away from himself. And that's exactly what this meal is meant to do, yes? Turn our attention away from ourselves to Jesus. Third and final question is this. Who ends up being exalted, Mordecai or Haman? Trick question, answer, neither. Neither one becomes exalted. So as I close with this, let me ask the men to come up and pass the juice, and we'll take of the juice as a reminder of what really matters in our lives. There's several key words in Esther. We've talked about two of them already tonight. We talked about banquet, that the book was structured around a banquet. In fact, that word occurs 21 times in Esther. It only occurs 40 sometimes in the whole Old Testament. So it occurs more times in Esther than anywhere else. We talked about the word wrath or anger. That, that is a word that gets repeated in the book of Esther. Well, here's a third word, actually a little group of words, and it's the word fall, as in fall down, and some synonyms like bow or bow down. One of the repeated topics in Esther is height or who is above someone else or status. So let me give you some of the key verses or instances where that occurs. Uh, we actually saw one of the first ones where Mordecai refuses to bow before Haman. Bow means to go low, right? Mordecai refuses. Remember when Xerxes wants to honor a man, Haman thinks that it's him. Haman says, put him up on a horse, get a nobleman to lead the horse. The king says, good, do that for Mordecai. Now think of it, Mordecai's up on a horse, Haman is leading him, he's lower. You might think, wow, Ron, that's kind of stretching things, kind of looking for this up, down, high, low thing. Maybe that's coincidence. I don't think so, because a few verses later, Haman's wife says this, Esther chapter 6, verse 13, if you want to look at it. 
Haman's wife says this, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. She uses this word twice, to fall. And she's right. Haman is in the process of falling, and he will fall even further. Maybe one more example of this fall or bowing. Remember that what seals Haman's death is this. At that banquet that Esther throws, just for the three of them, King Xerxes is furious, furious. He leaves the room. When he comes back in, what is Haman doing? He is falling on the couch before Esther. How ironic that Haman, who was full of wrath because Mordecai, would not, Mordecai, a Jew, would not bow before him, is now low, begging before a woman that is a Jew. And maybe the little bit of humor, maybe one of several places that are humorous in the book of Esther, Mordecai, or sorry, Haman actually does get exalted way, way higher than anybody else. He gets lifted up about 50, 60, 70 feet off the ground by being impaled on a pole, a stake that is that high and killed by order of Xerxes by the end of the book. So we know that Haman doesn't get exalted in a good sense in the book of Esther. Does Mordecai get exalted? Well, at the end, he does wear the royal robe, the royal crown, the royal signet ring, but that's temporary. The book ends with this, not the elevation of Mordecai, but this very word in chapter 10, verse 3. Mordecai sought the good of his people. Loyalty to God was loyalty to his people. And that's how the book ends. Neither one is really exalted. And it's such a great reminder that all of us, thinking back to chapter 1 in Esther, do not care about appearance, about status, about credentials, about power, about a list of friends or acquaintances on a resume. We are equal at the foot of the cross, and if we are equal at the foot of the cross, then only one is exalted, and that is our King Jesus. And what exalted him was the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood and the resurrection of his body and the victory that God the Father exalted him to. So with that in mind, Jesus said, this is my blood shed for you for the remission of sins. Drink it, all of it. What we're doing now with this closed country that we heard about earlier tonight is so much more than just proclaiming the text of the gospel. Think about it for a minute. If we wanted to proclaim just the text, the words of the gospel message, why wouldn't we get together with other churches, rent some big bomber, but it doesn't have bombs in it. It has burlap sacks filled with a million pamphlets that describe the gospel. We open the bomb doors, send the pamphlets down to this closed country, Millions of them flutter down in their heart language. The people read them, we fly back, we've done our job. That is not what Jesus commanded us to do. That is not what make disciples is all about. 
Making disciples has to be a face-to-face, one-on-one, a distance of three feet or less kind of a thing. It has to be. So part of what we heard from this team this morning, and these families are going, is that they're willing to do that. They're willing to be loyal to the people of God that are in this closed country now, present and future. There are some people God has called that don't even know that yet, right? Some people that when these families are there, they'll talk with and sense that God is beginning to reveal things to them and God's Holy Spirit is about to give birth to a new believer. And they'll be there to see that happen. And they'll share that with us and we'll rejoice with them. So this great theme of the book of Esther, loyalty to God is loyalty to his people, is a part of what missions is all about. Seeing God grow up his people from all the languages and tribes and people groups of the world. Second, and finally, we know that these missionaries are going to struggle. There are going to be times when, like Daniel in the book of Daniel, they'll know. Someone's calling upon me to renounce Jesus. I cannot do that. I must speak up for Jesus here and now, and I will at the risk of my life. Other times, it'll be like the book of Esther, and maybe it'll be a gray area. I don't mean sleeping with the king of Persia, but other areas will just be uncertain. Can I dress the dress? Can I eat the food? Can I listen to the music? Well, probably yes to all of those. In what way should I honor an Islamic feast or festival? Whoa, that's a harder question, isn't it? How can I be respectful without worshiping what they worship, which is a rejection of Jesus as the Son of God? and God the Son. So as we close, at least our teaching part of tonight, and sing one more song, let's pray for wisdom for these families that are headed to a closed part of this world, all right? Pray with me, please. Father, I'm reminded of, well, the books that are around the book of Esther in the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, that only one of those was a clergyman. Ezra was a priest. God, you called Nehemiah an engineer and a builder and an architect. And you called Esther to save her people, or you saving your people through her actions. And Esther was someone with no wealth or power, an orphan even, a lady which in that day and time was not a position of power, nor could it be, and a Jewish person in a foreign land with enemies in high places. So God, we thank you that no one in this room can say, God can't use me. I don't have the looks. I don't have the appearance. I don't have the credentials. I don't have the training. Thank you, Father, that you use all of us. Thank you for what you inspired Paul to say in 2 Corinthians 12.10. When I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul reminds us, All of us live to be on our knees at the foot of the cross, and only one is exalted. Thank you for reminding us of what led to his exaltation tonight by reminding us of his body and blood. In Jesus' name, thank you for revealing to us what is true and what will be true forever, that Jesus is king and he died for us. 
so that we might live forever together with him. Amen.